0: Well, imagine with me that the only car that you have is a beater. It's got like 200,000 miles on it. It's rusting everywhere. It's always breaking down. You're always having to repair to fix it. And it can only go up to 40 miles an hour. Wouldn't that be a lovely car to have? That's the only car you have. So one day you wake up. And you realize that there is a strange car in your driveway, and it's your favorite car. So imagine with me now what car you would buy if you could buy any car, right? Now imagine that car being in your driveway, 2011 model, and you're thinking, well, the neighbor must have been drunk last night and he parked in my (laughs) driveway. (laughs) It's not my car, all right? So you go out and check it out, and there's a huge envelope on the windshield. And you open up the the letter and it says that this car is from God and that this is a supernatural car. This car will always remain in mint condition. The exterior, interior, the engine, nothing will ever go wrong with this car. And even better than that, you're never going to have to fill up The gas tank, because God is going to do that supernaturally. This this car is not going to cost you a dime. I mean, what better news could you receive? Now, the question is, what car are you going to drive that week? Are you going to drive your old beater? Or are you going to drive this unbelievable gift that God has given you? Now, let's take that analogy and compare it to our spiritual lives. The old beater is our sinful nature. It's the way we normally approach life without God, without His power, without His wisdom. It's the way we do life when we're not in a good place. And the brand new car is the salvation that God has given us, the new life. When we become a Christian, God gives us a new nature, a new capacity to to live life like we've never lived it before because we can have a relationship with Him. We're able to partner with Him. We're able to serve Him when we couldn't before. We were totally separate from Him. So again, we have a choice when we get up every morning. Are we going to drive our beater? Are we going to drive our sinful nature and try now to do the Christian things that that we hear about from God's Word and hear taught about. A lot of Christians do that, surprisingly. When they've got this supernatural car in the garage called salvation, they don't live out their salvation. They don't work out their salvation. They don't drive out their salvation. They just default to the way they used to do things. Their sinful nature and they're so frustrated and they're spiritualized because it's not happening the way it's supposed to happen. Well, it's because they're not using their new nature. They're not using the new car that God has given them. They're not using the fuel that comes from God to live the Christian life. And that's what we want to talk about today, because we're talking about joy. We're talking about get the joy. Get the joy. Studying the book of Philippians. Challenge you to bring your Bible every week. Open your Bibles up to Philippians chapter 2, verses 12 through 18. Philippians 2 verses 12 through 18. We want to talk about the importance of joy in your potential, or joy in your salvation, working out your salvation. The first thing you need to do is to use your salvation. Let's look at Philippians chapter 2 verse 12, Philippians chapter 2 verse 12. It says, "Therefore." Now that's a very important word. that's a transition word. And what he's saying is, based on what I just said, this is how you should act. Now, what did he just say? Well, if you were with us last week, we talked about the fact that he told us that we need to be selfless. Not selfish, but selfless. We need to put other people in front of ourselves. We need to consider what their needs are. And then he laid out the beautiful model of Jesus Christ how He was selfless, how He gave His very life for you and for me. So based on that information, based upon the command to be selfless, the model of Jesus Christ, He says, Therefore, this is how you should live, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Continue to work out your salvation. Now, that kind of, that's kind of strange. We think, now, wait a second. Is Paul saying that we need to earn our salvation through good works? No, he's not saying that. He's made it very clear in other parts of Scripture that you can't do that. He's saying, work out your salvation. Work at it. Discover your salvation. Explore your salvation. Get in that new car that God has given you. Get in that new nature. Be fueled by Jesus Christ and experience life in a way you've never experienced it before. The problem with so many Christ followers is we look at salvation as a one time event. Back when I was five years old, back when I was 15, 25. I made a decision to follow Jesus Christ, people say. That's when I realized I was a sinner. I I couldn't earn my way to heaven. Uh, Jesus Christ had to pay the penalty for my sin. I accepted that, and I became a Christian. And that was my salvation. And then it just stops right there. And they say, okay, now I'm going to live the Christian life on my own, in my own sinful way. I'm going to try to do my best, but you don't have the power, you don't have the resources, you don't have God to help you, so you're driving your beater around. You're not driving God's new car around. What it means to work out our salvation is we need to discover the joy of walking and having Jesus Christ live through us. Salvation, in a sense, is a process. Now, don't get me wrong, once you make that decision, you're going to be going to heaven. But a lot of people think that's all I need. No, no, no. It's just the beginning. We look in Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that He who began a good work, and you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. So He began the work when you became a Christ follower. But He's continuing to do the work. He's carrying it on to completion When you will see Him face to face, that will be the completion of your salvation. When you'll have a new body and you'll be able to see Him and you will be like Jesus Christ in the sense of perfection in the way that you carry out your life. So, salvation is a process. Salvation is a process. And we're working that out in this new car if we choose to drive it that God has given us. We've got to make that choice. We've got to work it out. We've got to make it happen every day. And the the idea of working it out in the original language is the idea of mining ore. It's the idea of harvesting a crop. It's something that you again extract. So what we're doing is we're extracting the beauty and the power and the nature of what it means to let Jesus Christ live through us. That's what it's talking about. Working out our salvation. Now, how do you work out your salvation? Well, one of the primary ways you do this is through obedience. Obedience. Obeying what's found in this book. There's a couple different types of obedience. There's shoulder obedience, and then there's heart obedience. Shoulder obedience is when somebody's looking over your shoulder keeping you accountable uh, when your boss is looking over your shoulder, uh, when your spouse is looking over your shoulder, when your parents looking over your shoulder. You're going to do what they say because they're right there and you want to please them for whatever reason. But hard obedience is when they're gone. It's like if you say to your child, listen, I'm going to be gone for several hours and I want you to do these three things. And when you get home... They tell, you, they tell you that they did those three things, but there might be a question whether they're misrepresenting what really happened. Because you weren't there to watch them. It was maybe shoulder obedience. They said, well, Mom and Dad are gone. I'm going to do my own thing. When they come back, I'll tell them that I did it. Well, that's sometimes how we can operate. When somebody's watching us, we're going to obey. But when nobody's watching us, That's when it really shows how deep our spirituality is, how mature we are. If we obey from the heart, we don't obey because somebody's watching us. We obey because we love God so much. We obey because we want to please Him. So the question is, when nobody knows what you're doing, do you obey? That really is a a true sign of maturity, that you do the right thing, even though nobody will ever know that you did the right thing this area of obedience is so critical it speaks about our maturity first john 2 5 but if anyone obeys his word god's love is truly made complete in him this is how we know we are in him but if anyone obeys his word god's love is truly made complete in him so as we Interact with God as we follow His manual, His instruction manual for living. That's when we're made complete because we're living life the way God intended it. This is how we know we are in Him. There's a lot of ways we can know that we're Christ followers, and one of them is that we have a thirst for obedience. We have a desire to obey God. Have you had a desire to obey God this past week? Have you sensed a Spirit convicting you of a sin? Have you been happy when you obey God in a certain area? Is God speaking to you and constantly working on new areas of your life so you can become more like Jesus? That's what we're talking about, having a thirst for obedience. You know the Spirit's at work in your life. You feel that He's speaking to you. He's guiding you. And it's all because you are obedient. You want to know how much you love Jesus? You you can sing all you want. You can testify all you want about how you love Jesus. But the true way to tell how much you love Jesus is how much are you obeying Him? Now, you're far from perfect. But if you have that desire to constantly want to obey Him, you love Jesus because you want to please Him in that way. So we need to obey. How do we need to obey? We need to obey with intensity. We look again in Philippians 2. 12. It says, Therefore, my dear friends, as you have always obeyed, not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. With fear and trembling. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that we need to live in fear of God as we work out our salvation, that if we don't do it in the proper way, There's going to be some type of discipline or punishment. No, that's not what it means here, fear and trembling. What it means is is that this is such an important thing to do that you need to do it with fear and trembling. I remember when my kids were uh, small, they were getting splinters all the time. And I was a doctor in the house. I was on call when they had a splinter. So what I would do is I would take the needle and I would sanitize it and then I would start to operate. <laughs> I would start to dig in. And How many have done this before? Any splinter removers out there? Okay, yeah. And, and, and you know what? I did it with fear and trembling. Because I didn't want to cause my child pain, but at the same time I wanted to relieve them of the pain that they were experiencing because of the splinter. But I wanted to dig that pain out. And I really did it with fear and trembling. I was so careful I wouldn't make a good doctor. <laughs> because every time they would wince, you know, I would kind of draw back and try to... Come from a different angle. Wesley sitting right here. he knows, did I do a good job? Or no, I didn't do a good job. Okay, all right, come on. All right, but you know, I, I dig in there and I get that splinter out. But I did it with fear and trembling because I didn't want to hurt them. This was very important that I give all my attention. I had all the lights, you know, on the uh, surgery that was going on. What he's saying here is that when you live your Christian life, you need to do it with fear and trembling. It has to be the highest priority in your life. It needs to be the one thing that you focus your attention on and do in a serious nature. And the challenge is we can so easily fall into a casual Christianity. When God says, you need to do this, and we say, well... I don't really need to do that. I could think of a lot of other people who aren't doing that. And I'm doing real well in these areas over here. So I think I'm just going to forget that particular one. And, and look at all the good stuff I'm doing. That, that's casual Christianity. That's not obeying God with fear and trembling. You need to get serious about it. You need to get serious about knowing God's Word. And I will talk about this every week. Because, friends, you've got to get into this book. you got to get serious about it. Last week we talked about that first 10 of the day. That first 10 or more when you spend your time with God. How would you do this past week in that area? Did you spend time reading the Word, spending time in prayer? Did you listen to Christian radio, the great teachers that you can listen there or download podcasts or study Christian books or... Study a passage. How much time did you spend in this book compared to surfing the internet or surfing the channels on TV? Now again, we need to make this a priority. We need to get serious about it. Not just say, Oh, I'll get to the Bible sometime. I don't have time today. We need to get serious about it. We need to do it with intensity, with fear and trembling. Or how about ministry? Getting involved in ministry. We're a team here at Springbrook, and we are in a very important business. And sometimes we can have a volunteer type of mindset. What is a volunteer type of mindset? Well, when I'm a volunteer, sometimes I can think, well, they're lucky they have me. They're not paying for me. And so therefore, my volunteer work is not as important as my job and Other things that are really important to me. But I'm just helping them out. And therefore, I don't have to do the quality of work that I do when I'm being paid or something that's very important to me. That's a volunteer mindset. Well, friends, we are not volunteers here at Springbrook. We are soldiers here at Springbrook. We're part of an army that's in the middle of a satanic battle. And we need to treat it like that. How many have been in the military? All right, well, you know what it's like, right? I mean, it's serious stuff. You follow your directions. The commands that are given, there are no questions. You do it. Well, that's how it is in our body. We are in the life-changing business. There's nothing more important being done on earth today than what God's church is doing. So when you're involved in a ministry, whether it be a small group, whether it be in our children's ministries, whether it be in production, whatever the case might be, you take that very seriously because you're doing this work for God. And so when you sign up for something, you say, I'm going to be there, you be there. You do everything you can to be there. And if you can't do it, well, then you get somebody else to do it. And when there's communications going on, if somebody sends you an email, respond to it. If somebody leaves a message, respond to it. Get serious about doing ministry for God. Lift it up a level. This is serious stuff. This is not just something that, well, I'll do if I have time and I don't have. you You know what I'm talking about. We need to take this stuff seriously. We need to obey God. We need to thirst after His Word. We need to do ministry. We need to be sold out. Christ followers we need to do it with intensity and finally when we obey we need to do it with God's energy Philippians two thirteen, for it is God who works in you to will and to act according to his good purpose now wait a second this is confusing first of all it said work out your salvation that's my responsibility now it's saying God is working in me so which is it well it's both God and you are working as partners together It's a beautiful thing. And God's the one who's doing most of the work, right? God, in the original language here, it says He's working in you. It's the idea of He's infusing energy into you. He's doing the primary work. You're working along with Him. And when you're working as partners and when there's synergy there, wow, it's a beautiful thing because you're growing. You're maturing in Christ. And He's fulfilling His purpose Now, again, this is something I have to continue to drive home to myself as well as to uh, you, uh, my family. That so many times we try to live the Christian life on our own. We get in our beater car and we drive around. We can't get over 40 miles an hour. So what's going on here? Why can't I obey God? Why can't I get my act together? Why can't I change this issue in my life? Well, it's because you're driving the beater car. You're driving your sinful nature. You're trying to do it on your own. You've got to get in God's supernatural car. You've got to let Jesus' life flow through you. You've got to say, God, I can't do this on my own. Hey, this is what I've got to do today. Help me out. I need power. I need wisdom. I need love. I need guidance. Lord, show me the way. I'm going to be dependent on You. you got to start. Letting God live through you. That's the Gospel. That's salvation working itself out in you. Are you struggling in an area in your life today? In obeying? You've got to ask yourself how many times you've asked God to empower you to help you overcome that area of temptation. You've got to keep asking Him. You've got to keep going to Him. You've got to keep meditating on His Word in order for Him to fill you and empower you in order to to help you make it. Galatians 2.20 is a a verse that talks about the exchange life. It says, I have been crucified with Christ, and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave Himself up for me. So, I've been crucified with Christ. What does that mean? That means your sinful nature was crucified. You still have it, but it doesn't have the power. The Bible says you were slaves to sin. You couldn't do anything else but sin. But when Jesus Christ came in, He gave you a new nature, He gave you a new capacity to have a relationship with God, to experience God's power and all the other resources He has in your life. You got a new car, and you got to drive that new car i've been crucified with christ a sinful nature no longer has to have power i can give it power i no longer live i don't want that sinful nature to control me but christ lives in me i have a new nature a new capacity a new car a new power to live my life the life i live in the body i live by faith in the son of god who loved me and gave himself for me I live by faith. That is the way we live the Christian life. We get up in the morning. I get up in the morning. And I think, oh, I've got to deal with this issue. I've got to deal with that issue. I've got to deal with this issue. I've got to deal with that person. And I go through the list. And I'm tired before I even get out of bed. But if I go to the Lord and I say, Lord, i got challenges today. And I'm not going to try to do it on my own. Because I know I'm going to fall on my face. I want you to flow through me. I want you to live through me today. I want you to empower me to take on these challenges. Because I can't do it on my own. I want you to live through me. You see, usually we're on a roller coaster in life. You know, uh, you know, things are going well. We're on this roller coaster and we're feeling great about life. And, oh, you know, things aren't going so well. Uh, it's really a drag. And then we go back up again. Well, yeah, that's the nature of life. But we need to have an in-and-out type of life where Jesus Christ is flowing into us and then He flows out of us. And whatever area you're dealing with right now, you need to say, Jesus, take control. I want to make You the center of my life. Remember we talked about that? Making Jesus Christ the center of your life and letting Him live through you in order that you might be able to live supernaturally. In a way that other people can't live because they're controlled by their sinful nature. So you live by faith. You don't know it, you're not sure it's going to happen, but you're putting your faith in God that He is going to deliver. All right, another verse related to this is John 15:5. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. Well, I can do things. I can do ministry even without God helping me out. Well, yeah, true, you can, but it's not going to count for eternity because you need to do things through the power of God. You need to obey Him. You need to do it uh, through His life. So, what I want you to do is just bow your heads uh, for a moment here. And I want you to, first of all, think about an area of obedience that you've been struggling with. And it should come to uh, mind pretty quickly because the Holy Spirit always has something there where uh, we need to uh, change our behavior. Think of that area. And if you need to repent, if you haven't repented over that area, do that right now. Agree with God that it's wrong. It's not pleasing to Him. Confess that sin. All right, now uh, I want you to express to God how serious you are about this area of your life. Intensity. I want you to communicate to God that you're tired of this issue always controlling you. That you're really serious about doing something about it this time. And you're going to do it with fear and trembling. Communicate Communicate that to God right now. And then finally, I want you to say, God, there's no way I can do this without the power of Jesus Christ. Claim Jesus Christ's power in this area of your life. Ask for his power today, tomorrow, throughout the week. You're going to have to continue to ask for it. Maybe, I don't know, maybe it's an area for the rest of your life. It's an area of weakness. But ask for the power to be victorious in Christ. Dear Lord, what we just went through is what we need to go through every morning, every afternoon, every evening as we go through the challenges of life. Lord, I pray that we would let Jesus Christ live through us, that we'd stop driving our beater and we'd get into your supernatural car and let Jesus Christ take the wheel. In Christ's name, amen. All right. So you need to use your salvation, you need to work out that salvation. Let's move on here. You need to display your salvation, you need to show it to other people. Philippians 2, 15 through 16, it says, So that you may become blameless and pure. So that you may become blameless and pure. What does blameless mean? Well, it means you can't be blamed for something. Now again, we're not perfect, but... When other people who are not Christ followers when they look at your life if they see a pattern of behavior, a pattern of disobedience that doesn't line up with what a Christian should be doing, they can look at you and say well you're a Christian but you do this. Now again if it's a pattern, it's something that again you've dismissed and say ah oh, I don't care I'll continue to do that, you know, grace will cover it, whatever. You know, that's being blamed. But you want to be blameless. You want to continue to work on Having a life of obedience. And you want to be pure. You want to be innocent. Every day you want God to be removing impurities from your life. You're a child of God. You're a representative of God. My boys are children of my wife and I. And they represent us. Their behavior represents us in some ways. I'm very proud of them. You see, we represent Our Father. And God is looking at us against... With some people, you might be the only God they ever see in the sense of a representation of what God should be like. But it means to be a Christ follower. You might be the only person. So That's very serious, isn't it, when you think about it? Without a fault, in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe... We live in a crooked and depraved generation. We could go on and on. Let's just talk about the area of sexuality. Young people these days, as you might have heard, are sexting each other. They'll send text messages with pictures of themselves naked or other people. You kind of go like, wow, what's going on with that? And then you think about uh, the homosexual agenda. Making homosexuality, marriage that is, a law where homosexuals have the right to be married. Again, homosexuality is a sin. That shouldn't be the case. That's twisted and crooked. Now, at the same time, if you struggle, if you have homosexual tendencies, I would encourage you to talk with myself, talk with somebody else, and work through that. It's tough. It's a very difficult issue in your life. But you can have victory in that area. But when when you watch TV and you see all these different TV shows, reality shows, glorifying the homosexual lifestyle, we're going down the wrong road. Then you think about the whole way young people, or really older people, whatever, approach marriage. I used to be in the old days, the expectation or the more, it didn't always happen that way. The expectation was, That you dated a person. And you decided, okay, I want to marry this person. So you got engaged, but you did not engage sexually. And then you made that commitment in marriage. And after that commitment you made to one another, you experienced all the joys of marriage, one of those being a sexual relationship. That again was the mori of the expectation based upon the Scriptures on which this country was founded. The Judeo-Christian ethic. Well, that's not the way it is today, right? You, you talk to different people. You hear stories. What happens? You, people start dating. They get very early into a sexual relationship. And then they say, you know what? Uh, we really like each other, so we're going to live together. That's the first step. That's right. We're going to live together. First of all, you have sex. And then you live together because you've got to test out whether you're compatible or not or something like that, Okay. And so they live together, and they might even have a child together. Now, when do they decide to get married? I'm not really fully sure how they process this. I guess when they decide to make a commitment to one another. I mean, were they living together? Was that you know? It's very fuzzy. The issue is nobody wants to make a commitment, right? That's sinful. You don't want to make a commitment to a person. I don't want to get divorced, so I'll live together. That doesn't make any sense, right? And what happens is is Then once they figure, okay, we're ready for marriage. We're ready for the ceremony. What does that mean? Well, sometimes that means that they have to have a house. We've got to have a house before we get married. Or that means that we have to get married in the right season. Or we have to have the right location. Uh, So I just talked to a person who's kind of following this type of orientation. And they're getting married next October. And it wasn't appropriate at that time. But I said, what is going on with you? Get married now! You know, If you're involved in a sexual relationship, get married now! You're putting the cart before the horse. And I tell you what, God does not lay this stuff out to be a killjoy. He does it to protect us. I talked with a person recently who said that they have been involved in a sexual relationship and they cut it off and they're going through extreme pain because they're still in love with this person, but they're trying to be godly and not be involved in a sexual relationship And the reason they're experiencing pain is because they got the car before the horse. First you get married, then you have sex. All right? That's the way God put it together so you'd have a commitment to one another. That sexual bond is a unique bond. And when you rip people apart, which was never meant to be, you're supposed to seal that bond with a a sexual relationship. When you rip that apart, it causes incredible pain. Our world is so crooked and so depraved, and so many people, maybe even yourself, have bought into this lie. Well, if you bought into this lie, you need to repent. God loves you. He'll forgive you. He'll put you back on on the straight and narrow road. That's going to bring joy to your life. People aren't experiencing much joy, I believe, with this particular orientation. So we live in a crooked and depraved generation in which you shine like stars in the universe. There wanted to be a movie star before you've gone out to hollywood and you've toured uh, the different areas and seen their different homes or maybe reading people magazine well friends i don't think anybody probably is going to be a star here uh a movie star a celebrity whatever the case might be maybe maybe you are god leads you that way that's great but you're going to be a star in god's kingdom and that's much better you're a star All right? Hey, isn't that great news? You are a star. You are a luminary in this world. This world is pitch black, and wherever you go, you are shining the light of Jesus Christ. You're telling people, this is the way life was created. This is what God wants for you. God loves you. You shine that light, and the question that I have to ask about myself, and you have to ask yourself, is, hey, what is my wattage, man? You know, am I, am I a 60 watt? Am I an 80 watt? 160 watt? How bright am I shining, you know? We look at Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It says, In the same way, let your light shine before men, that they may see your good deeds and praise your Father in heaven. That's how we shine our lights, by doing good deeds. And when people see the change in our lives, they praise God because they know it's God. Because you want to tell them that. You do good deeds, and this is happening all the time. You're shining, and you don't even realize it. People are watching you. They watch how you, how you live your life. They watch the decisions you make. They watch what you post on Facebook. They watch everything, if they know you're Christ follower. What is a Christ follower? What does that look like? Not perfection, but a person who is pursuing to be more like God. They're watching. And what you say, the words that you use. And what you say about Jesus, what you say about your love for Him, what you say about your relationship with Him, what you say about how He answers prayer, how He encourages you, how you talk about other Christ followers and the joy that comes from from coming to church, from being part of a small group, all those types of experiences. You don't have to dump it on a person. Just little by little, you share little snippets of what it means to be a Christ follower. You invite people out to be with other Christ followers. You want to do that because you want to show them that Christ followers are normal people. They're not strange. Now, we might have to uninvite some people like myself to certain events. Uh, you don't want to turn anybody off. But but the point is, hey, we're normal people and we have fun. We have fun. we got a lot of things coming up. we got our men's breakfast. Invite somebody out, men, to that breakfast. And we're going to have great food. We're going to have great teaching that's going to help them and Raising their children. Everybody needs help with that, right? How about our women's event? Raking in the lease. are just going to have fun. Raking in the fun, that is. Uh, the whole idea of just hanging out and uh, getting to know other ladies. Now we got our hayride. I mean, what's more neutral than a hayride? Can you invite your friends out to a hayride? I can understand maybe the service isn't the first thing you might want to invite somebody out to. Sometimes people are ready, as we've talked about. But a hayride... Let's go to Randall Oaks and have a hayride. How American is that? You know, s'mores, all that kind of good stuff. You can do that. In fact, everybody take out your offering envelope. I'm not going to ask you to put anything in it right now, but uh, take out your offering envelope and take the cards out there. You got to get the joy cards. Everybody do that. All right. Get get the cards out there. And these, again, are opportunities for those people you think might be ready to come out. Last week, uh, my neighbors came out. And I was so excited uh, to have them here at Springbrook. In fact, last night, a lady came up to me and said, you remember me? I was at uh, Dr. Jeff. Dr. Jeff Silberfine goes to our church. He's a chiropractor. And uh, I've gone in him for many years, and he's made me a believer. Uh, so I go there on a, mo- a weekly basis, and-, and I just invite her. I said, hey, why don't you come out to our church? And she showed up. How do you like that, huh? That's great. Yeah. Just keep, invi- just keep passing those cards out wherever you go. Pass them out. Anybody will take them. Because the Holy Spirit is the one who's going to lead that person here. We need to be an inviting church. If we want to reach people for Christ, we need to keep inviting them. Invite them into our homes. Invite them into social gatherings. Invite them to activities at church. We need to invite them primarily into relationship with us so they can get to know what a Christ follower looks like and the Holy Spirit can continue to create... That thirst to know God more and more. Now, how do we do this? What's the one thing that God commands us in this passage to do? Well, He says don't complain. Don't complain. Look at Philippians 2.14. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Now, look at the context. Everybody look at the screen here, okay? I want you to show you something very important. Do everything without complaining or arguing. Then we go to verse 15. So that when you become blameless and pure, children of God without fault, in a crooked and depraved generation, which you shine like stars in the universe, as you hold out the word of life, in order that I may boast on the day of Christ, that I did not run or labor for nothing. That doesn't seem to fit. I mean, that's a glorious passage there, isn't it? And what does it say? In order to experience all this, you need to stop complaining and arguing. Now, I could understand, hey, stay away from sexual immorality. Don't murder anybody. That kind of thing. Something really big, but complaining, I mean, that's that's our right. That's an American right to complain. And we're the most complaining nation on earth, I believe, because we're so indulged. We have so much. We expect so much. We're raised by our parents, and they pamper us and... Give us everything that we want. And when we don't get what we want, we complain. In fact, the word complain in the original language is gagusman. And that's onomatopoeia, which means it sounds like complaining, right? Gagusman. My wife, gagusman. My husband, gagusman. My kids, "Gagosman," The person who's driving so slowly in front of me, gagusman. My meat isn't hot enough. Gagusman. My favorite show was canceled. Gagusman. The Bears lost. Gagusman. Right? We have so many things to complain about. And you know what? When you're complaining, you're basically saying to God, I don't trust you. You don't know what you're doing. You're messing my life up. You're doing things that shouldn't happen. This is not my plan. What are you doing, God? That's what complaining is. It's a lack of faith in God. Now, let me just be careful here. It's okay to express your feelings as you're processing through a difficult time in your life. It's okay to talk about discouragement. It's okay to talk about anger, whatever you're going through. That's not complaining. But everybody knows there's a line you cross when you start to complain. It's it's beyond processing. It. You're just bitter. Anybody know a whiner? Anybody know a whiner out there? Raise your hand. Yeah, we got whiners in our life, right? Oh, whiners. They drain your energy. They're always complaining about everything. It was like Max Licato, who was running a, uh, a half uh, iron man triathlon. And so he had uh, swam a half a mile, he had rode his bike 56 miles, and now he was running 13.1 miles, and he got next to a whiner. And he just engaged with this guy, and this guy said, "Oh, it's the stupidest thing I ever did. I wish I'd never done it. It's so hot. I'm so tired. Uh, What a waste of time." And Max said, "I can't take this anymore. So he had to get away from him because it was bringing him down." And then he caught up with this 66-year-old woman, and she was just kind of tooling along, and and Max was really dragging, and she was encouraging him. She said, "Hey, you just got to take one step at a time. You got to keep hydrated. Aren't you glad it's not raining?" Finally, he couldn't keep up with her anymore. So he dropped back and she said, well, have a good day. <laughs> and she keeps moving, right? Well, who are you going to hang around? If you're hanging around whiners, you've got to get rid of them unless you're married to them. all right? you got to stay with them. Okay? <laughs> but get rid of all the whiners you can because you need to be encouraged in life, right? This is serious stuff. Remember the Israelites? They... They got goosemaned about everything. right? They were always complaining. We don't have enough water. God gave them water. We don't have bread. He gave them bread. We don't have meat. He gave them meat. They said, we want to go back to Egypt. What? Yeah, we want to go back to Egypt. Well, how did God deal with them? We read in 1 Corinthians 10. We should not commit sexual immorality as some of them did. And in one day, 23,000 of them died. We should not test the Lord as some of them did and were killed by snakes. And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. What? And do not grumble as some of them did and were killed by the destroying angels. I'd say God's pretty serious about this, isn't He? Because again, when we grumble, when we complain, we're basically saying, God, You don't know what You're doing can't trust you, God. James 5, 9. Don't grumble against each other, brothers, or you will be judged. A judge is standing at the door. We're not to complain, and also we're not to argue. We're not to argue. So many times we argue, and I I think in this context it means arguing with God. We argue with God. Lord, why are you doing this to me? Why are you allowing this circumstance in my life? Don Piper, a well-known pastor, writes this, Life is not a straight line leading from one blessing to the next and then finally to heaven. Life is a winding and troubled road, switchback after switchback. And the point of biblical stories like Joseph and Job and Esther and Ruth is to help us feel in our bones, not just know in our heads, that God is for us in all these strange turns. God is not just showing up after after the trouble and cleaning it up, He's plotting the course and managing the troubles with far-reaching purposes for our good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Maybe you're in one of those switchbacks right now. Maybe you're one of those strange turns and you're wondering, "What are you doing?" Like we talked about last week, joy in circumstances, right? Why does God allow certain circumstances in our life in order to draw us back to Jesus? in order to make Jesus the center of our life where all joy comes from, the source of all joy, in order to grow through that circumstance, even though we'd rather not have it in our lives, it's what's bringing us closer to God. It's maturing us. That's the attitude we need to have. So, as you go through life, you don't complain. You don't argue with God. You say, God, thank you for this circumstance and help me to grow through it. Thank you for this circumstance and help me grow. To grow through it. You're in a traffic jam. It's taking you forever. What do you say? Thank you for this experience and help me to grow through it. You're having a terrible time with your child on a particular day. They're frustrating you unbelievably. Thank you for this circumstance and help me to grow through it. You're having a terrible day at work. Everything is going wrong. Thank you for this circumstance and help me to grow through it. That's hard to do, isn't it? Well, I want to proclaim today no complaining day for the family of Springbrook. That's right. That's a challenge. No complaining day. We're not going to complain today. The bears are playing. Um, <clears throat> well, we're going to grow through it, okay? We're just going to grow through it uh, if things do not go well, Right? All right, so I want you guys to commit to one another. People you came with, no complaining today. We're going to thank God for whatever happens. We might not be happy about it. We might cry over certain situations. We might feel a lot of pain, but we'll thank God for it and help me to grow through it. The last thing is you need to spend your salvation. You need to spend your salvation, Philippians two seventeen and 18. This is what Paul writes. But even... If I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith, I am glad and rejoice with all of you. So you too should be glad and rejoice with me. He's being poured. What's a drink offering? Anyway, Well, let's look at uh, Numbers 15, 6, and 7. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two-tenths of an ephah fine flour mixed with a third of a hint of oil and a third of a hint of wine as a drink offering, offered as aroma, pleasing to the Lord. So what they would do when they sacrificed animals, foreshadowing Jesus Christ's ultimate sacrifice for us, is they would cut off or they would kill the animal, they would lay the animal on the altar, they would burn the animal, then the drink offering would be the final part of the sacrifice final part of the sacrifice, it usually be oil, wine, like stated in the verse. And they would pour it around the altar. Then they would pour it on top of the altar. And because of the heat of the animal being uh, burned, it would turn into steam right away. And then God, of course, would, bring, would smell that and, uh, again, just experience and enjoy the aroma of that sacrifice. That's what Paul says he is here. Now, if we look back at our passage here, it says, but even if I am being poured out like a drink offering on the sacrifice and service coming from your faith. So what was the main sacrifice? The main sacrifice was the financial gift that the Philippians gave. That's what Philippians is. It's basically a thank you note for a sacrificial financial gift. Of course, it's more than that, but that was the purpose of the the book. Uh, But he's saying, you have given this wonderful sacrifice to God, and now I'm topping it off. I'm the finishing part of the offering because I'm giving myself back. You remember he said, for me to die and uh, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. He said, I-, I choose to live in order to bless you. So I'm sacrificing my life for you. I'd rather go and be with God, but I'm going to sacrifice my life. I'll be the, the drink offering, the final part of the offering to, to, to top your offering in a sense to, again, complete uh, your offering. And you see, he poured his life out. And that's two different orientations. You can have an orientation where you pour your life out or you can protect your life. And we tend to go toward protecting our life. We want to protect our assets and our resources and our friendships and our health. And we just want to protect everything. We go into an entrenched mode trying to protect our life. When God says you need to pour your life out, every day you need to get up and say, Lord, I just want to pour my life out for You. I'm going to give my energy for You. I want to love other people. Show me what You want me to do. How You want to flow through me. That's the orientation we need to have. So the question is, are you pouring your life out or are you protecting your life? Ask God to help you to pour your life out. George Bernard Shaw said this, Near the end of his life, George Bernard Shaw was asked by a reporter, if you could live your life over and be anybody you know, any person from history, who would it be? And without much hesitation, he said, I would choose to be a man that George Bernard Shaw could have never been, but never was. We all sit here, and as we listen to God's Word, we're convicted. We're saying, I'm not where I should be. But the good news is that you're alive today and you can change. How many of you are alive? Raise your hand. So i got some dead people out there. Come on now. going want to be calling the cops. All right, okay. I'm kind of convinced. I'm not sure. But hey, you're all alive. That means hopefully you at least have one more day to change. One more day to get in God's new car. To let... Jesus Christ flow through you to obey Him, to not complain, but give your life over to God and pour yourself out, and hopefully you'll have years to do that. You can change with the power of Jesus Christ in your life. And through this wonderful process, you're going to experience this supernatural joy that we've talked about. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You for Your joy. Thank You for this passage that so powerfully communicates what we need so much. Lord, help us to reflect upon this passage this week and apply it to our lives. Lord, help Jesus Christ flow through our lives. In Christ's name, Amen. If we could have our ushers come forward at this time.